You know, you can tell a lot about a man if you can listen to him pray. Not when he is praying in public so much as when he is praying in private. The things that he prays for in private, if he really knows God and seeks God's presence, are mighty revealing. One of my favorite stories, which happens to be quite true, came to my mind yesterday when I was thinking about uh, some Scottish elders and a wonderful Scottish minister that I know and his brother. Some of you who listen to us on the radio each week also listen to Pastor Ian Walker in Hendersonville, North Carolina, or you listen by television occasionally to Dr. Alistair Walker of the First Baptist Church in Spartanburg. My first acquaintance with Alistair Walker came many years ago in Waco, Texas, when I came to know him then as a dedicated man of God. Then later I went to Scotland where I preached in his uncle's church. Later I met his father, who happens to be buried in a cemetery near Hendersonville. A couple of years ago, Alistair came here and stood behind this sacred desk and expounded the word of God to the students in our college in a chapel program. Something had been brought up while we were together that I was to check out for him, and so it was uh, necessary for me to call him long distance uh, after he had gotten back to Spartanburg. And so when I called him on the phone, he told me, he said, you know, today you mentioned to me in your study my father, and you brought back so many precious memories that on my way home from uh, Montreat Anderson College, I went through Hendersonville, and I went out by myself to the cemetery, and I knelt down at my father's grave, and I prayed. And he said, I prayed and thanked God for the inspiration of his life and for all that he had meant to me in leading me in the right way. Because that morning we had recalled Alistair's conversion. He had been converted to Christ in Johannesburg in South Africa, where his father was a distinguished minister and where he was a rebel against all that his father stood for in holiness and in godliness. And in his youthful rebellion against Christ, and in his rebellion against his father, he broke his father's heart. But one night when he came home on a Saturday evening, after a night of revelry, he happened to pass quietly into the house, slipping off his shoes outside the front door. And as he sneaked by, he overheard the voice of his father in prayer. He told me that he stooped down and with his ear to the crack at the bottom of the door, he heard his own father pouring out his soul to God for his wayward son. He said, there was nothing for me to do that night except to give my life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and I was converted listening to my father pray for me. And what a great ministry has grown out of that unusual prayer. One of the most sacred and marvelous passages in the Bible is this 17th chapter of the Gospel of John. I have told you repeatedly that the Gospel of John is designed to create within us faith in Jesus Christ, faith that is supremely important, faith that teaches us that there is no salvation apart from the Lordship of Jesus in our life and the atonement which he has accomplished uh, for our sins 
and the ministry of his Holy Spirit in working in us. All of this rises and comes to the surface afresh when we come to the 17th chapter of John, after our Lord has delivered the precious words that he had spoken in the upper room, he prays. First of all, in the first few verses of John 17, he prays to the Father. He prays to the Father, revealing his own precious thought. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Most people would have been dreadfully afraid of the hour which now falls upon him. But here he looks forward to this hour. In a sense, all the rest of us, when we come to the end of our days, leave so many things not complete. But our Savior completes the task which his Father had given unto him. Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. The purpose of his coming was to glorify his Father. We say in our Westminster Catechism that the chief end of man, the chief purpose for which man was created, his goal, his aim, his purpose in life is to glorify God. The word glory in Greek comes from doxa. It's where we get the word orthodox, a, a straight opinion. An orthodontist is one who makes teeth straight. Uh, we uh, speak of of orthodoxy, uh, is straight in what we believe. Uh, a straight opinion, a straight glory to God is given here. And Jesus' thinking is that his life has been spent for the purpose of glorifying God, and we also are called to that purpose also. The word for church is interesting in Scripture. It's ecclesia, ek. E.K., transliterated into English, means to take out. If I pull a tooth out, it's ek, it's taken out. Ecclesia uh, is a group that are called out of the world. The word world, as I have told you before, appears over 70 times in the Gospel of John. And it deals not merely with geography or the planet, but it deals with the system of society which is under the dominion of the devil, and uh, which is in organized opposition to the purpose and the will of God. And so those who are called out are the ecclesia, the called out ones who are called into the church of God. We had an amusing speaker at our awards banquet on Thursday evening who told us of some football player who was greater in skill than he was in intelligence. And when... Uh, uh, he had filled out his application for Furman University, and it said, what is your church preference? He wrote, red brick. Well, <laughs> uh, that, that uh, does, it shows what some people think when they think of church. They think of red brick, or they think of, of river rocks, or they think of modern architecture. That is not the church. The church is the called out ones. Those who have been called out, who have heard the voice of Jesus, and have been called out to follow him. Martin Luther, in a famous debate uh, with one of the greatest scholars of all times, Erasmus, when Luther, during the Reformation period, sought to argue about the true nature of the church, and the church of Rome dominated everything by its hierarchy, and Luther spoke out against it because it had departed from the work of God. Erasmus kept citing to Luther 
The word church, 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 the church has said this, the church has said that. And Luther finally screamed, literally, back to Erasmus and said, church, church, church. That's all you can say, Erasmus is church. What is the church? And then he said to him, the church, you can't define it, but he said a little child can. The church is a shepherd whose lambs are following after the shepherd, and that's the church. It's those who are called out by the Holy Spirit and who are following the Lord Jesus Christ. They are called out of the world and its system and its way of thinking, and it is under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now then, our Lord Jesus says this, this is life eternal, and this is tremendously important. This is life eternal that they might know thee, these men whom he had chosen, and those who will later believe because of their testimony, that they might know thee, God, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. The ordinary man thinks that the Christian faith is simply the following of a certain moral code and that that's all there is to it. And that if he follows that code fairly well, when he dies, he goes to heaven. But the average man really isn't concerned much about heaven or much about hell because he's not sure that either one of those places exist. But to the believer, heaven is real. And to the believer, hell is real. And to the believer, the way into heaven is through Jesus Christ. And the way to hell is to be outside of Jesus Christ. And so it is supremely important. John Knox, when he lay dying, called out to his young wife, go and read me where first I cast my anchor. And she read to him the words which he had read over and over again. This is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Now then the Lord Jesus explains that he has glorified the Father, and now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. This shows that Jesus existed before the world was, that he is deity, he is God incarnate in human flesh. To deny that is to deny his deity, and it is to mean that you are no Christian, you are lost. You must affirm the deity of Jesus Christ in order to be saved. You must not only mouth it in words, but believe it in your heart and settle it that you will live under his lordship as the Holy Spirit enables you so to do. He had shown the name of God unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world who were called out of that system of the world. And now he enters into the three things that I wish to speak with you about because they guide us. And when I think about this, I think about the unity for which Christ prayed. The unity for which he prays is, first of all, a unity in truth. And what does he say here is truth? He says, thy word, O God, is truth. What does he mean by thy word? that the divine revelation which had been revealed, thy word is truth. The risen Christ on the road to Emmaus spoke to those two who were so forlorn and reasoned with them about what Moses had said and what the prophets had said. And later in the upper room that evening, 
what was said in the Psalms concerning him. That is God's word. It's God's word revealed. The words of Jesus are God's word. The words of the apostles written here are God's word. We subscribe in the Presbyterian Church to the Bible as the only infallible rule of faith and practice that we must bring our lives into conformity with his word. Men do not wish to do this. They want to write their own theology apart from his word. They want to write it contemporary. And so you have people who wander far afield from the word of God. And I think it's because that word demands of us that we bring our lives into conformity with him. We see ourselves as we are, sinners, needing regeneration and a savior. A few years ago, it was my privilege to go and preach in India. And I'll never forget being in southern India and listening to those marvelous little minority groups of Christians who know their Bibles and have them so exceedingly well-worn. And we talked about one of the functions of the Word of God, which is to be like a mirror, uh, to present to us a true picture of what we really look like as God sees us. And they told the story of a wild tribesman who had come out of the bush country and had gone close to a missionary's place and he had found there a, a mirror that someone had cast aside. And this man with his disheveled hair and his wild face picked up this mirror, which he had never seen a mirror before, and he looked in it and he flung it away as fast as he could throw it away. And then he was curious, and so he went to the bush and he got the mirror out again. And he looked at it and again he threw it away. And then he called some of his other native friends. And he said, you know that thing. I know why whoever had it threw it away. You should go and look in it and see what they see when they look in it. Well, he was seeing a reflection of himself. And there are many people who throw away the word of God because they don't want to believe that there is a hell. They don't want to believe that there is a heaven. They don't want to believe that they cannot get by with committing adultery, that they cannot get by with hating and lying and cheating and stealing, but that the Lord is dealing with us, and so they try to write their own creed. A few weeks ago, Dr. Louis Evans, Jr. was here, and he spoke from this platform. And later at lunch, Dr. Billy Graham and some other guests were present at the luncheon table. And I happened to have picked up an old book by William Evans, who was his grandfather. And it had surprised me when I saw that he was the William Evans who used to teach at the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. And so I asked Louis Evans, this distinguished minister of the a very famous National Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C., where so many of the important government figures attend worship. I asked him what he remembered about his grandfather, and I could see that I had struck a tender chord because his eyes began to glow, and he regaled all of us at the table with the tremendous stories about his grandfather, an Englishman, a longshoreman, a dock worker who had been converted to Christ through the ministry of Dwight L. Moody and who had worked his way on a boat over here to this country, who wanted Moody to let him go to the Bible Institute, and yet he did not have the education for it. He said that when Moody's carriage would go down the street, that this longshoreman would come running alongside, speaking in his cockney English to Moody, begging him to let him go into his institute that he was determined to get an education that he might preach God's word. 
and Moody thought that he couldn't make the grade. But finally, Moody relented because he himself had some educational deficiencies, and so Moody relented and led him into the Institute, and he became one of the grandest preachers in America. His uh, son, Dr. Louis Evans, uh, of the distinguished Hollywood Presbyterian Church, and then this Louis Evans, Jr., all great preachers. Well, Dr. Evans, in speaking to us, told us of how his grandfather, in the heyday of criticism of the Bible, would take a big, elegant edition of the Bible, and he would walk out into the front of the congregation, and he would say to them, he would say, they tell you that you cannot believe this Bible because miracles are not true. Very well, then, he would say, let us take this miracle out, and he would tear the page out of the Bible and let it float all the way down in the presence of the congregation. And then he said, they tell us that this miracle is not true. And he would tear the page out and let it float all the way down in front of the congregation. And then when he got to the life of our Lord in his virgin birth and the miracles which he performed, page after page, he tore out and let them flutter down. And then he said, now what do you have to believe? And he held up the covers with the pitiful thing. He said, do you think this will save your soul? It takes a miracle to save you. And it takes the God of miracles to save you. Jesus said, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word, O God, is truth. And then he said that there should be a unity in holiness. And this, of course, is where we must understand that it's not enough that we simply believe and are united in what we believe. But we must also be united in holiness. Holiness is another word that's misunderstood. The word saint in the New Testament is the identical word for holy. If you pick up a German version of the Bible, it says holy Matthew, holy Mark, holy Luke, holy John. It doesn't say Saint Mark, Saint Luke, Saint John, and so forth, because holy is to be a characteristic of the believer in Jesus. The Holy Spirit indwells us, and he is to be transforming us and causing us to rise above those old ways of life into a newness of life in him. We have an old nature that pulls us down. We're to have a new nature of Christ, and I'm saying this to the young people who will be going away. The Holy Spirit indwelling you is to produce that wonderful new nature of Christ in everyday life. I think of a little boy who was once with his father out in a garden where there were many beautiful flowers, and his father was trying to explain to him something of of physics, and he was trying to tell him about the law of gravity, and he tossed a pebble up in the air, and it fell down. And, and the father told him that the pebble fell to the ground because there was gravitational forces in the earth that drew the pebble down. And then the little, little boy saw a brightly colored tulip, and he said, but father, if gravity pulls everything down, why did the tulips grow up? And the father said, because inside that tulip bulb there is a germ of life, and that life overpowers the law of gravity, and it grows up. I looked in my driveway. I've tried, like everything, to grow some grass in, in another place, and I saw on the asphalt little bits of grass coming through the asphalt. <laughs> and I thought, here I am trying to grow grass out here, and it won't grow, and here it is coming up through the asphalt. <laughs> uh, there, there is a power at work there, you see, that can go on through it. Well, we, the Holy Spirit indwells us. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word, O God, is truth. Jesus said, for their sakes I sanctify myself. 
That's a mystery to me. Why would Jesus ever have to sanctify himself? Only he could say that. You and I need to ask him to sanctify us, to grant the Holy Spirit's ministry in us in such power that we will grow. Now, we need both truth and we need holiness. Did you ever stop to think about salt? Common salt, sodium chloride. It's necessary for your health. And yet, you take those two things separately, they could kill you. They're deadly. Sodium is deadly. A chloride substance would be deadly, taken by itself. But you put them together, and they are healthy. They can be healthy for you. We, in fact, it's essential. We must have so much uh, salt. Now then, let me say this. We must have truth. And with that truth, we must have holiness. It's like the wings of a bird. He cannot fly on one wing. He needs both wings. He needs faith and he needs works. He needs the two together. And the Holy Spirit produces holiness uh, within us. And it's important for us to remember that both doctrine, teaching, and ethics, the way we live, go together. And then lastly, mission. What are we called to do? What was Jesus called to do? In this, in this marvelous passage of Scripture, he says to the Father in his prayer, As thou hast sent me into the world, even so send I them into the world. And he was talking about you, and he was talking about me at that point, that we were being sent into the world to carry out the purpose for which he came into the world. That we are to glorify God by loving him and by doing what he commands. By committing that faith to others that they might come to believe. This is the work of students who will go away from here as seniors. It's the work of elders and deacons who to be elected. It's the work of every member of the body of Christ and every believer is to relate that faith to others. I was thinking about the first little church in which I served, out on the plains of West Texas, south of Canyon. I remember so well that group of ranchers and farmers, just a little tiny church, little wooden frame church. And I was a young boy in college. They couldn't get a minister to come there and the Lord had recently touched my heart and I had yielded to his call to go into the ministry and the executive secretary of the presbytery asked me if I would go there and conduct services for them. I told him I was just learning the Bible myself and he said, but they need you so much. I can close my eyes and see William Miller and Alden Mann and those old elders in the church. Little did I know that later I would be burying some of those men. And yet they were elders who were to guide me, a callow youth with no experience, uh, seeking to serve the Lord in that place. And I think about those elders like uh, if you've ever been to sea in a big ship, they have a pilot who comes on board and guides it through a treacherous area. And then when you get out to sea, the pilot gets off and let you go on on the ocean 
And God gives men who have wisdom to guide and to bless and to help and people who can be a blessing. And there were so many that helped then. And of course, when I think of those here who have been so helpful, I think about Dr. Uh, I talked to Miss Wilson yesterday. She's praying for our election today. I talked to her, and she is faced with a follow-up of a lot of treatment that we need to be in prayer about. I have this little booklet of Dr. Bell's, and I, every time I think about a man that used to put me under anesthesia when I had surgery, a man who was not a Christian, a man to whom Dr. Bell as a fellow physician witnessed and wrote this letter, and with it I want to close because it shows that unity and mission. It's a letter that he wrote in 1961 to this one to whom he had been witnessing. Although I may never have shown it as I should, I love you as a friend of long standing. Where personal friends are concerned, so often I have hidden the Christ who means everything behind my own facade of pride and selfishness and trying to sell myself instead of the one who is my Savior. And because I have done this, you have seen a sinner saved by grace, yes, but nonetheless a sinner, who should have led you to seek Christ, the sinless one. I say this now because you may at times have imagined you saw in me some measure of goodness, when as a matter of fact that goodness was in God's sight nothing but filthy rags. Anything which is truly good and right is the radiant goodness of my Lord, which he gives to his own, and for which all the glory and honor are due unto him. And then, in the conclusion of his letter, he wants him to know this. I write this to you now because sooner or later I will die, and then it will be too late for me to bring these things to your attention. Others may do so, but I will have failed in my duty and my privilege of witnessing for my Lord. I also write this because for me there is no fear of death. I know that through the love, mercy, and grace of Christ, who died for my sins, cleansing me by his life's blood and rising again from dead for my justification, that I am thereby saved to live with him for all eternity. And finally I know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. I write all of this now because it's too good to keep for myself. It's something every person should know and believe and have for himself. And I want so much for you to share the same joy and hope which Christ has given me. What about our own lives? Do we have that nature of Christ within us, or are we just pretending to be Christians? Do we cultivate that nature by reading his word and by prayer? Do we have unconfessed sins in our lives that defile the inner man? Are we willing to forsake it? Do we allow our old nature to control our thoughts and desires, or does that new nature prompted by the Holy Spirit live within us? And finally, when temptation comes, do we play with it or do we flee from it? Do we immediately yield to the voice of the Holy Spirit who seeks to bring us into conformity with Christ 
that we might be one with him in truth and one with him in holiness and one with him in his mission to the world. Let us stand in prayer. O God, our Father, the great passage of Scripture which we have been looking at is too big for any one little preacher. But we pray now for the great teacher, the Holy Spirit himself, to guide us into all truth, to guide us into holiness of life, to guide us in our sharing of Christ to others. For those who are here present who know not the Savior, help them to know that they can this day make it the greatest day of their life. They can say that on May the 2nd, 1976, to the best of my knowledge and ability, I yielded my life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Enable those who have not done so to do that this day. For those of us who have known and loved the Lord Jesus a long while, but have been such imperfect followers of his, we pray that the Holy Spirit will work works of grace in us, that that old nature with its hateful trappings might die more and more, and that that new nature of love which the Lord Jesus brings as the mark of his own might live within us. And we pray that you will bless us each one according to our need, through him who is our Savior and whose nail-pierced hands have caught us and saved us. In his name we pray. Amen.